quite regularly with club athletes is they do an awful lot of their easy days too fast. So when you get your lactate testing done and you get your heart rate zones, that you've got a maximum heart rate not to go above and a maximum pace not to go beyond on your easy days. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Finish Line Podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, traveling and adventure. And I'm your host, John O'Regan. I'm joined today by Emma Dunleavy of PerfectPacing.com. Perfect Pacing provide individualized coaching plans based on scientific principles of endurance research and model on the training methodologies of the top athletes in the world. This episode is sponsored by Great Outdoors, Ireland's premier outdoor retailer. You will find them online at www.greatoutdoors.ie. You will also find all the previous episodes of this podcast on greatoutdoors.ie. Emmett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Now, to start things off, can you tell me a little bit about your background? Okay, so I've been running since I was probably nine or ten years of age. I'd have to say with limited success as a youth. I had, I was always involved in the sport, always really enjoyed running, enjoyed training, was eager to improve, but I have to say and had pretty limited talent when I was younger. But I'm from Sligo. We had a nice group there. We had a good coach in Terry Hayes originally, and Terry's ambition was always, I suppose, to keep us involved in the sport for as long as possible and that we would become good seniors and thankfully for most of that group we went on and actually ran at a pretty respectable level as senior athletes so uh, he was quite successful in that and I suppose from my point of view over the years I've learned a lot from training with other athletes particularly athletes at a fairly high level and I suppose that has gradually over the years transitioned into coaching in the last couple of years and, and uh, trying to avoid people making the same mistakes that we did along the way as youths. That was going to be my next question when did you kind of transition across into coaching? But the first one we met was actually on a coaching course a level two coaching course down on the lawn and we went there for a training run after one of the sessions is that right? That's right yeah. And that's when we got talking about heart rate training and I noticed that I was kind of getting a lot from you on that day because that's something I had an interest in. When did you start focusing or, or becoming interested in using your heart rate as a training metric? Well, I suppose heart rates would be something that we would have used all along when we were training, you know, from once I went to university in Galway, we would have used lactate testing as part of our, I suppose, to put a little bit of structure around what we were doing on a on an ongoing basis in terms of it would have had tested at the start of the season that would provide our training zones in terms of heart rates and pace. We'd use those over the course of the year and then I suppose sometimes you might get tested mid-season but more often than not it was sort of an annual thing you get tested 12 months later and you can see not only through your race results but also through the physiological data that you get from the lactate testing how much you've improved and I suppose it gives you a guide in terms of what areas of your physiological profile need to be worked on over the coming 12 months as well so we would have used it quite a bit we'd have used heart rates quite a bit but I suppose something that I'd be always keen to stress is while it's a nice tool it's a great thing to have it's certainly not the be all and end all it's it's another element of training it's another element of coaching I find very helpful for athletes that I don't see on a regular basis that I can control what they're doing but it's not to be taken as a magic bullet either you know it's, it's just another part of the the coaching and training profile okay that's interesting can you talk us through the basics of training okay so I suppose when I would look at my philosophy on on an outlook on on training i'd look at first and foremost is aerobic development so to get the athlete as aerobically fit as possible and to do that in a manner that i suppose to start off what you're looking for is is a minimum effective load what's the smallest amount of training that an athlete can do develop aerobically and that they can sustain that over a long period of time without getting injured the heart rates allow you to put some control over your training so in particular mistake i see quite regularly with club athletes is they do an awful lot of their easy days too fast 
So when you get your lactate testing done and you get your heart rate zones, that you've got a maximum heart rate not to go above and a maximum pace not to go beyond on your easy days. So that's first thing. And that consists of 80% of your weekly training, that it's in that low intensity zone. And then as you gradually move up to aerobic threshold, lactate threshold and the higher intensity stuff, the heart rates will put a little bit of structure on that. But I suppose the higher the intensity of the exercise, the less reliable the heart rate is as a gauge. So it's, it's a better benchmark for low intensity work and for long distance work. Okay, that's a good point. I always think that uh, training hard is easy because anyone can go and run themselves into the ground, but that's not really training. And training f- is all relative, I suppose, to how fit or, or how fast you actually are. So it's all down to intensity and how much stress you're putting on your system. Is that what you get from your lactate testing? Exactly, yeah. I think the biggest issue for athletes is that they need to train at the current level of fitness as opposed to the level of fitness that they want to be at in a couple of weeks or a couple of months time and the heart rates and the lactates tend to slow athletes down uh, and that's where you get most of the benefit from that you're training you're training in the, in the correct zone of intensity and and the heart rates help help guide that over a week how would you schedule that out between easy and hard what would the percentages be again it depends on the time of the year and the athletes but to take a typical example of a club runner who's running maybe cross country or maybe targeting 5k and 10k road races that would would train six days a week okay so they have one rest day typically that athlete will have one long run at the weekend okay so that's long and easy they'll do two workouts during the week i would usually aim those workouts at two different stimulus so one might be a lactate threshold type workout and the other workout might be something like a long steady aerobic threshold effort or it might be something like high intensity hill session but that you're getting two different stimulus in the week and you're not repeating the same stimulus again so that's three days and then the other three days are literally just easy runs time on your feet again that you're at a a pace and heart rate where you're not accumulating lactate and you're not putting excessive stress on your body it doesn't mean those runs are not that you're not going to be tired after them but they're not putting excess strain on your body and they're allowing you to recover from the hard sessions so that you're in a position to go hard again in two or three days time the only other element that i would add into that what i would get at least to do strides and short 10 second hill sprints probably once or twice a week which keeps you a little bit of turnover in there and it keeps you a little bit of a, a faster stimulus as well when you particularly during the winter months when you're doing an awful lot of threshold type work you need to keep in touch with the the fast twitch fibers uh, and a little bit of turnover as well how easy is easy a couple of barometers that i would use first and foremost it's conversational pace if you can't have a chat when you're running easy then you're not genuinely going easy i suppose what i would look at is in terms of pace you're looking at probably about two minutes slower than your 5k pb pace it's around 60 to 90 seconds per, per mile slower than your marathon pace and if you're to look at it in terms of heart rate you're probably looking around 60 to 70 maybe 75 percent of your maximum heart rate so there's a couple of different barometers there obviously for anyone out there who's actually had lactate testing done you're basically looking at a level of intensity where lactate is not accumulating where you're, you're clearing lactate quite comfortably and you're looking at a lactate level of around sort of one some around one 1.5 millimole what are the benefits of training below the lactate threshold rather than training above it i know there's benefits from both but what would the benefit be from doing most of your training below it Generally speaking, you're training more aerobically if you're just below the lactate threshold and if the level of lactate is that little bit lower, so between somewhere between 2 and 4 millimole, but most athletes' lactate threshold occurs around 3.5 or 4. So going slightly below that, I suppose in theory, you're looking at the intensity is that little bit lower. You're able to get a little bit more volume in at that intensity and you're doing a bit more aerobic development. Where you go above the lactate threshold, the duration that you can sustain those paces for is dramatically reduced, okay? So your overall training load or your volume for the week or that day is reduced and it tends to be a little bit more stressful on the body. The mechanics of running that little bit faster, you know, you're into a zone where you're possibly getting higher injury risk as well. The other thing to keep in mind though is that there's been some studies done last year, Stephen Celier, who's a Norwegian physiologist, done some testing on athletes who had trained just below the lactate threshold 
and then retested them about a week later with doing workouts at a much higher intensity. And it's interesting what he found was even though the lactate levels were much lower on the first session, that the heart rate variability response was actually quite similar. So that once you go, I would say, above your 10 mile or half marathon pace, that the overall impact or the overall training load is quite similar. What changes is the duration. And as distance athletes, what we like to do is get as much duration as possible with minimum injury risk. If you were to give somebody a 14-week training plan for a 330 marathon, they've come to you and they say, my 10K time is 45 minutes. You've done your lactate testing on them. You've given them a plan. A few weeks into it, their 10K time has improved. They then think, well, maybe I can run faster than a 330 marathon. Should they stick with a plan or should they upgrade their expectations to run a faster marathon? I guess the main thing that I would say in a situation like that is if you've done the lactate testing at the start and you've got your heart rate zones, what you will find is that by sticking to the same heart rate zones, the paces are improving as you go through the training plan. Okay, so their, their 10K PB might have improved. You might find their 10 mile PB has improved as well. And you will take those race times as a prediction of what they might be capable of doing for the marathon. So if they're training the same heart rate zones 10 weeks later, but the paces are dramatically faster, you would have to think that athlete is probably capable of going quicker than 3.30. But with any athlete, and this is something I'm having conversations I'm having this week and next week ahead of the double marathon, what we'll do is we'll look at their key sessions over the last five to six weeks, uh, see where their heart rates and paces were when they were doing marathon-specific workouts. And based off that, you get a good gauge in terms of how sustainable a specific pace was. So let's say somebody who's running 3.30 for the marathon, it's eight minute mile in. What we look at is where was your heart rate at eight minute mile in over the last couple of weeks? Was it in that sort of aerobic threshold type zone? And the, what you don't want to see is too much cardiac drift towards the end of the sessions that they're under extreme pressure towards the end of long runs and stuff like that. You look at all that data, you can get a good idea in terms of how sustainable eight minute mile in is. It might be quite easy and you might say, look, maybe you're able to go 740, 7.45. I suppose the one thing I would always be conscious of with athletes getting ready for a marathon is that underestimate your time rather than overestimate it. If you start out too slow and you can pick it up, great. But if you start out at a certain pace and you're not able to pick the pace up, then you're going fast enough anyway. That's actually why I asked that question now, because I find that you get a lot of athletes that when they get into that kind of taper period, they go out and they do a 5K and they're hitting a 5K PB and they then think, well, I can do a lot better in the marathon. So maybe I will run a bit faster. The same happens on race day. When you stand on the race line, you're feeling great. And the pace that you could sustain at the start of it, you kind of think that you'd be able to sustain it for longer and they end up going out aiming for something that's a bit faster and then bonking. I suppose it's worth keeping in mind that the 330 marathoner versus the 230 marathoner is quite different in that respect because you've got to think a 330 marathoner is probably relatively new to the sport. The training that they've done in that last 10 or 12 weeks is probably the highest volume they've ever done. So aerobically, they're getting a huge amount of benefit and therefore they're going to run PBs over every distance. In contrast, if you take somebody who's running 230 or 220 for the marathon, they have already exploited all of their aerobic development over their previous couple of years in order to be at that sort of level. You would find those athletes, would it's highly unlikely that they'd PB over 5k or 10k coming into a marathon because they have effectively turned off that anaerobic system due to all of the, the high volume of marathon training. But for the 330 athletes, this has been a whole new stimulus for them that they haven't done before and a rising tide lifts all boats for an athlete like that. Now following on from the Dublin Marathon, how much downtime would you take? All depends on how the marathon goes. I mean, if you're somebody who bounces down Marion Square, has run a PB, you finish quite fresh and you almost feel, you know, a day or two later, you're not that sore you could almost go back out running again, that athlete will recover an awful lot quicker as opposed to the person who ends up hitting the wall at 21, 22 miles and really struggles home in the last couple of miles. As a general gauge, I would take get every athlete, no matter how well you finish, take seven to 10 days off completely. And then over the next two weeks that you will just gradually introduce just easy running. For the most part of the next three to four weeks, they're not doing anything substantial. 
for somebody who really struggles across the line and has a tough day at the office, that is a case of taking two, maybe three weeks off, no running at all. Let your body recover because obviously stress levels, you know, cortisol levels and, and those hormones are extremely high after, you know, a, a tough day like that. And it's going to take your body an awful lot longer to recover. So a lot of it depends on how the race actually goes itself. But no matter how good you're feeling the week after, don't be too tempted to get stuck back into hard training again too soon. Now, if somebody was out spectating at a marathon and it inspires them to want to do a marathon themselves, how long do you think they should allow to train for a marathon? Say it's somebody who's been running 10K regularly. It all depends. My own perspective would be, in terms of moving to the marathon, it's a nice event to do, but it depends on do you want to tick the box and just do a marathon or do you want to exploit it and make the most in terms of your progression and, and run the fastest time? We'll say tick the box. Tick the box. In that case, if you've never run any further than 10K, but you've done 10Ks regularly, you're probably looking at somewhere between 6 and 12 months. Ideally, probably the best thing to do would be give yourself 12 months and gradually build up the volume of running that you're doing each week and also increase the duration of your long runs over the course of the year because you need to do that gradually and in a safe manner where you can still train consistently over the over the 12 months so if anybody is in dublin next week you get inspired by it i'd say sit down and do a 12-month plan for yourself to build up to maybe dublin next year rather than getting too excited and looking at a spring marathon i'd spend the spring of the year doing 10 milers and half marathons and then you gradually build through the year up to the marathon in the in the later part for even for some of the top guys that i'm coaching they'll do just one marathon a year so some of the guys were, were in berlin last week or two weeks ago they've entered berlin again next year and they'll do a full 12-month cycle to get ready for that so i think one marathon a year for most people is probably enough some people do more that's fine but you've got to question whether they're getting the absolute most out of themselves if you're doing more than more than one marathon a year and to start off that six to twelve months would the first month be just time on feet to kind of build up that uh, aerobic capacity yeah pretty much i mean again it goes back to you know developing your aerobic capacity so you want to put a base in place first of all and then i guess it depends on what you know different times of the year you're going to target different events in general for somebody targeting a marathon so let's say they've got a decent base over the first couple of months and when they find themselves in march or april things are going well what i would always do with that athlete then is bring them back and focus on 5k 10k type work for the next sort of two, maybe even three months. So you're working on your speed development, a little bit of turnover, your lactic threshold, developing all those physiological aspects over the sort of two or three months, let's say from March, April, May. And then when it starts to come to June and July, you begin to switch back towards the marathon specific stuff. The one thing you need to keep all the way through the year is you need to stay in touch with the long run. But the workouts during the week would might have a more of a 5K, 10K emphasis in that sort of three to six month period before the marathon. And then that final 10 to 12 weeks leading into the marathon itself, it gradually becomes more and more marathon specific as you get closer to the race. Now, getting back to perfectpacing.com, where do you do your lactate testing? I do all my testing outside. Okay, so I do it on a track or uh, well, it's always on a track. It's usually on an outdoor track, but luckily when we're in Dublin and sometimes down that low and I've got access to the indoor tracks there, which is we use those for testing with some of the UCD athletes that I'm coaching. Um, the only drawback of outdoor testing is it's weather dependent. So if it's windy, you've got to postpone. It influences the results too much. Some of the athletes I coach would get a treadmill testing done from time to time. The only downside I see with treadmill testing is that you can't make the same inferences to what their capabilities are outdoors as you would for outdoor testing i think you can read a little bit more into the data from an outdoor test than an indoor one you've no wind resistance on the treadmill whereby when you're outside you're constantly burrowing into a wind exactly yeah there's a that that outdoor element to it that you don't really get indoors particularly if there's not a even well even if there is a one percent grade on the treadmill i think it's a little bit more of a natural environment outdoors and some athletes just prefer running outdoors as well 
and do you actually call out the clubs to do it on their track or do they come to you? Some people come to me and then there's the odd time I would, I would go to clubs and maybe spend a couple of hours there uh, testing some of their athletes so it, it depends on but most of the time I guess it's individual athletes that come to me to get the testing done. Can you talk us through a test? So a typical test is five to six repeats of five to six minutes duration. The intensity will start pretty much at your easy run pace okay, and it gradually gets more intense as the session goes on. So you'll do a five minute repeat at what feels like a very easy pace then you'll pick up the pace by maybe 20 to 30 seconds per mile repeat that again and so on and so forth until you get somewhere close to 5k pace towards the end of the test and what you're looking for is heart rate will pretty much go in a straight line as the test goes on heart rates for very different for each individual so i've seen heart rates maximum heart rates of 210 for some athletes i've seen some other athletes who have maximum heart rate in the mid 140s okay so it's a it's very much an individual thing and it's a case of just establishing your own heart rate zones in terms of lactate at the low levels of intensity what you like to see is that the lactate is nice and low and that would suggest good aerobic development if an athlete has come to me and they haven't done much run in the last couple of weeks you would find that even at low levels of intensity the lactate is already still quite high Okay, so that gives you in terms of what they need to work on. And then as the intensity goes up, obviously the lactate goes up and it gets to a point when you get close to sort of 10k, to between 10k and 5k pace, that it rises quite quickly, then establish the threshold zones afterwards. And what about retesting? How often would you carry that out? So there's no set time limit in terms of when you should get retested. It's a case of when you feel you've moved on in terms of fitness or your form has jumped on. So let's say you're somebody who's running, let's take 35 minutes for 10K. You get your test done, you do six months of training, and then you run a PB of, let's say, 33 and a half or 33 minutes. That's a pretty significant jump. So that athlete would be worth getting retested at that point. If you've done 12 months of training and you've just taken 30 seconds off your your 10K PB time, there's not really much merit to come back and getting retested again. You're probably going to get the similar results that you did in the previous test. So it depends on when your fitness has moved on, really. For some of the higher end athletes, they will get pretty religiously tested once or twice a year. They want to just, I suppose, keep on top of what they're doing. And it's also a case of if you've done a block of training, see how the lactates have responded to that block of training. And if there's something that you need to change in the training plan as a result. You mentioned cardiac drift earlier. How does that affect an athlete during a race? As the duration of the race increases, so and particularly in marathons, most athletes you will find will get to sort of 15, 18 miles. Heart rate will be quite steady. But then the body is under pressure to stay cool. Okay, so as a result, the heart rate, the heart is working quite a lot, an awful lot harder. The body in, as it itself is working harder to keep everything cool and keep the pace going and keep uh, the intensity sustained. So you find that towards the end of a race, that that maybe particularly from 20 miles on, that the heart rate, even though the pace is the same, the heart rate is, is constantly drifting higher and higher and higher. Something I'm curious about, if your heart rate is elevated, but your breathing is still okay, is that having the same effect on your lactate? I'm not sure. If you are running on the track, you were sprinting and you feel your breathing is labored, your heart rate is high. They're both being stressed at the same time. But if you're suffering from dehydration, the blood plasma is that bit thicker. Caused by dehydration, those harder for it, they're going to be circulated around the body. But you're still breathing okay. So you might look at your watch and you see my heart rate seems very, very high. I don't feel like I'm under pressure. Generally speaking, the heart rate is the best gauge of how hard you're working. Particularly for athletes, as they get well conditioned, their pain threshold increases. So their perception of pain is quite distorted versus what's actually happening at a physiological level. And this is borne out by an awful lot of uh, testing over the years by physiologists who will say, what is your perception of effort at a given level of intensity? And they'll say it was maybe five or six out of ten which would suggest to you that the lactate is not that high but when you take a lactate reading it gives a different a different picture of what's actually going on i was starting to think my question didn't make sense but now the advance to that i think it did make sense the athlete's perception of how hard they're going is not always a good gauge i suppose as a coach it's great to be there to actually watch a session because you can get a physical perception just looking at them visually it's nice to see how their mechanics are 
how they're moving. Uh, but also on the back of that, when you look at the heart rate data, it tells you, gives you an even better insight into what's actually going on. And when the heart rate starts to go up, you can be pretty sure that the lactate is beginning to drift as well. Now you mentioned with dehydration, would you be suggesting to an athlete that they should be staying hydrated as they're going through the race? Yeah, very much so. Over the course of a marathon, you can actually still allow probably a 2 to 3% dehydration over the course of the race. That's not going to have a ma- massive impact. In general, the science would tell us that you can get up to 5% dehydrated without a massive impact on your performance despite what some of the drinks companies would like to tell us and it's interesting actually Gabriel Selassie when he broke the world record a couple of years ago they actually weighed him before and after and he lost almost 10% of his body weight over the course of the race so hydration is important but it's not the be all and end all either 10% sounds quite a lot but when you consider that it takes 2 grams of water to store 1 gram of carbohydrate in the muscles that would make sense though it's a kind of permissive dehydration Exactly, yeah. And I, I guess it's an important point to make is that 10% is certainly on the extreme end and I wouldn't be advising people to aim for 10% dehydration. I mean, we often look at elite athletes and we look at their training and the stats that they come back with, but they're elite athletes for a reason is because they're physiological outliers. The stuff that they get away with, the average Joe is not going to get away with. Their robustness is one of their main talents and you've got to keep that into consideration is that they're nice to look at, but it's not always a case of copying what they do. Yes, and you also mentioned that it was his pre-race weight. That's not to say that that's his normal weight. He might have been a little bit overweight going into the race. Quite possibly, because when you, if you track your weight on a, a fairly on a daily basis, and you were to weigh yourself during the taper week, and particularly the last two or three days before the race, your weight is going to be that little bit higher because your carbohydrate stores are at, at absolute capacity. So therefore, you're going to be a little bit heavier, but your body composition is going to be the same. It's sometimes it's something that people panic about. Sometimes I think I'm a little bit heavier. I've got more weight to carry around, but your body composition as in I'm 8% body fat or I'm 12% body fat that's not going to change in the space of two or three days so yeah you're right Uh, his weight would be higher pre-race than it would be on a normal training day and something I'm curious about with the lactate testing if you were doing it for a trail runner would you get the trail runner to wear a bag on their back to simulate race conditions because their body weight when they're racing would be higher than the body weight at normal day to day yeah no generally I would test in normal conditions without the bag establish the heart rate zones you would establish the paces as well but those paces are going to be much different for the trail runner when they've got the bag on their back and they're actually out on the mountains Uh, but the heart rate zones will still be applicable I was always wondering about that because with VO2 max calculated per kilo body weight, that if they're going to be carrying a bag that three to five kilos, that their body weight is increased. Very much so. And there, that's again where the heart rates come in, that the heart rate will regulate the effort much better than your either your perception of effort or the pace. VO2 max, again, is one of those things that gets thrown around. It's a nice to know number for runners. There's not a huge amount you can do with it in terms of training it. And I suppose that the example that often gets thrown around is the Paula Radcliffe example when she was 19 or 18 when she got tested before she won World Junior Cross Country over in Boston. Her, her VO2 max was 71 when she broke the marathon world record many years later and she was a much better athlete at a much higher level. Her VO2 max was still at 72. For most runners, your VO2 max is, like I said, it's a nice to know number, but unless you've got the underlying lactates to go along with it, it's not hugely useful. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And VO2 max seems to be a buzzword. With the modern watches, they're all going to keep a record and measure your VO2 max based on what you've been doing. It might not be exact, but I kind of use that as a way of monitoring training. If I'm going to get to see if, if that changes or the positively or negatively how the actual session I've done has had an effect on my overall uh, training plan. I suppose the way that they establish the heart rate or the, the VO2 max and a lot of those uh, data that comes from the watches is based on algorithms. 
it's not 100% robust. Physiologists will probably tear their hair out when they look at some of the numbers and the data that comes out of it. But it gives you a general trend of whether things are going the right way or the wrong way. And as with any test, be it a lactate test or whatever form of, of fitness testing you use, if you use the same protocol each time, you can make a gauge in terms of whether you've improved from the benchmark that you set last time around. So it's, it's looking for trends over long periods of time rather than... Yes, exactly. So rather than just taking one session or one reading in isolation you have to look at the bigger picture. Very much so, yeah. And even when it comes to lactate testing, like again, as I said at the start, it's not the be all and end all. It's just a snapshot at a point in time. You need to take it in the context of, okay, my threshold has improved, but has my racing improved? Because ultimately you want to be running faster in races. It doesn't matter if you've got the best threshold in the world. I mean, there's an example often given of a Danish cyclist a couple of years ago who recorded the highest VO2 max ever. And this data was released. I think he was 18 or 19 when the data was released and there was a whole lot of articles written on it. There was so much pressure heaped on the guy afterwards. He actually didn't perform and he didn't establish, he didn't make it through to senior level. It was a nice to know number that you had the highest VO2 max ever recorded, but did it mean anything? Not really. And it had a negative effect on him. It sent him backwards rather than forwards. Very much so. And although it, it is good to know, but I think really from a training point of view, there's no substitute for getting proper testing done. Results. Yeah, again, it just puts a little bit more structure around it. But ultimately, I mean, this is borne out time and time again. As a general advice for runners, the more running that you do, the better that you're going to be. And you've got to just increase that training load in a gradual manner. There's a guy called Tim Gabbett, who's a, an Australian physiologist who'd done a lot of research a couple of years ago in terms of training load. So what he established was this acute to chronic workload ratio. So basically, he took your current week's training load and then compared it to the average of the previous four weeks. Now, the research was originally done on cricketers. So they looked at the number of balls that they bowled each week. And then when the injuries occurred, they looked at, you know, how did this week's training load compared to the previous four weeks? Subsequently, it's been rolled out to most endurance sports. But I suppose where it's helpful for a runner, if you were to take an athlete who's run, let's say, 100 kilometers for the last four weeks, they can go up to 120 kilometers this week. So that ratio can go to 1.2 and you're still operating in a pretty safe zone so that training load increase is quite manageable if it increases between 1.2 and 1.5 you've got to train with caution you're in a danger zone so for that athlete who's run 100k for the last four weeks if they're running 100 between 120 and 150k this week i mean intuitively you would say that's a pretty big increase but again you're two to five times more likely to get injured if you're in that zone and then if you go above 1.5 it goes to about eight or nine times more likely of getting injured so you're virtually guaranteed to get injured it's uh tim gabbard is the guy if anybody wants to look up the paper who uh, done most of the research and it, it's a nice little way of monitoring your training load and to making sure that you're you're increasing your volume in a safe manner because like i said ultimately the more running that you do the better but you've got to be able to do it in a consistent way now before we finish up if somebody wants to contact you to get lactate testing then where can they find you yeah, so you can contact me through the website, so it's perfectpacing.com or the Facebook page or my email address is probably the best way to get hold of me. It's perfectpacinginfo at gmail.com. Thanks very much for your time, Emmett. And we will get you back in again to talk through a training plan for a club athlete. Yeah, be more than happy to do so. Thank you. Thank you.